This morning we're starting a new series that I'm excited about. I'm excited about because I, I, I believe it's a, a series that is vital for us to understand and vital for us to, to know some of our doctrine, especially in a world that is, is counter-Christianity and counter some of what we believe. So we're going to be talking about the Word of God, the Bible. And I want to start by asking you the question, what do you hear people say that aren't Christians about the Bible? What is their answer about the Bible, whether it be in colleges or neighbors or co-workers? Archaic, lots of contradictions. Fairy tales. It's just written by men. It's what? Genocide in it. Okay, great. Thanks. Sorry, my hearing, you know, speaking of archaic. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, anything else? What was that? It's fake. And so, so why does the world have this view about the Bible? Let's dig into philosophy a little bit. Why would that be a, a prevalent view in a culture of secularism? Because if you accept the Bible as truth, you have to accept what it says as truth, and that counters what they believe. And then you can't just do what you want. You can't live in this world of secularism. And so this is the air that we're we're breathing. This is the, the culture that we are in, a culture that denies God's word, is anything but an old set of fairy tales written by a group of old men who some say were trying to control people and manipulate people into forming their own religion. And if that's all it is, then there is no reason for us to be here this morning. We could be out getting ready for the Super Bowl right now. But the Bible is so much more. And I know you believe that because you're here, but we want to explore why do we believe that? What are some of the proofs that we have, the evidences that we have? And so at times over the next seven weeks, we'll get fairly technical and we'll get fairly detailed into doctrine and and what our doctrinal statement says and some of the proofs and some of the evidence and how the canon was formed. We'll take a week on contradictions and talk about how to resolve those and how to resolve some of the famous ones that people bring up so you can have an answer for the hope that is in you. But the other side of this that I don't want us to miss as we get technical and as we take an academic approach to this, the other side of this is that the Bible represents the God of the universe, the God that is supreme above all things, the God that created everything we see with His Word, wanted us to know Him. And so He revealed Himself in His very words so He could have relationship with you and He could have relationship with me. See, when we think of God's Word that way, we start to appreciate the beauty of God's Word. I don't want us to just know why we believe it. I want us to love God's Word, to cherish God's Word, to long for God's Word. These are the things of the heart rather than just the head. You know, this morning I could have brought in a bunch of love letters that Susie wrote me while we were dating. And and, and, and since then, one of my sons is in the room would prefer me not do that for whatever reason. <laughs> um, but when you got those letters, and, and a lot of you are married or dating, when you got those letters, what did you do with those? Save them. Probably read them. You, you didn't just toss them in the trash, 
or toss them in the fire or whatever. You cherished them because they represented someone that loved you and cared about you. They represented their thoughts. They represented just the deep things of your relationship. That is what God's Word is like. It is God taking and writing to you and saying, I want you to know me. I want, I want to be with you. I have not forgotten you. You are made in my image. And so this book is written for you. And it's written for me intentionally. And today, as we talk about inspiration, we're going to find every single word in this book was carefully written and superintended by God so you would know Him and you would be in relationship with Him. So I would know that He loves me. That is the beauty of God's Word. And we're reminded of that and and the importance that we should take this. I mean, some of you are, are football fans, and today you're going to see some sort of game, I understand. And, and let's say that um, you're, you're a quarterback, you love to be a quarterback, and you're a Tom Brady fan. Now, if you knew, and, and there's stories about this all on the news this week, about someone getting a special ticket package or one of the players coming alongside. But if, if you as a football fan, and, and I guess I should have chosen the Rams because most of you are rooting for the Rams. Sorry to this section here. Um, <laughs> But if you're a football fan and you're a quarterback fan and Tom Brady sat down and wrote you a letter, that would be pretty cool, right? That would be amazing. You'd be like, okay, this is, this is someone that's way out there in this. I mean, this, this superb athlete and they wrote me a letter and, and maybe they're telling you how you can be a good quarterback or how you can, can play the game. You would read that. You would value that. You would treat that as important. Well, that is what Jesus did for us. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, but I want to start with a passage out of Psalm 119 that really helps us understand the whole knowing what we believe, but also realizing this is a love letter from God. In Psalm 119, the psalmist is writing, and the whole psalm is about the Bible, his commandments, his word, God's word. And in verses 129 through 136, just picked one of the stanzas. Just listen to the way that the psalmist talks about God's word. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do you hear the heart? Do you see his passion for God's word? The cherishing of God's word? The longing for God's word? That's because he he knows that it's God's word, but he knows that it's God's word to him. And that is gives this book value. And so out of the next seven weeks, I pray that that stanza becomes our heart. That we would know that this is God's Word, that we would trust it, it's dependable, that we would be able to defend it, but that we would long for it, that we would shed streams of tears, as the psalmist said, because people don't keep it, because people don't value it. This is vital to our faith. It's vital because this is the foundation of all of our doctrine. Because this is where God revealed Himself. This is, this is where God 
gives us the, the standards and the foundation by which we base everything else we believe. And so this subject is one of the more important subjects we can, we can study. Summing that part up, God created all things. He created us in his image. He wants relationship with us and he wants to be known. So he reveals himself through his word. In your notes, I just want to start with the big picture of what the Bible is. And so the very top, it says, what's the big picture? And, and, and really this answers the question of whose story is it? Because one of the, the problems we get into sometimes is we are only looking for things about me and things that I can gain and how this can make my life better. But in reality, this is a story about God and His glory. And so the big picture is the Bible is the story of God redeeming His creation to Himself. It's the story of God redeeming His creation to Himself. We sinned, we broke that relationship, and this is the story of God and His grace providing a way of salvation and drawing us back to Himself. In a nutshell, it's the story of His glory. We violated that glory, He restores it. And so as we go through this this series, think of this as God's story, but God's story to us because He loves us. And so we want to go through, we want to start this week and next week just looking at some absolute truths about the Bible. And some of these will be just very, very specific and a little technical, but they're foundational to understanding why we can trust the Bible. Why this isn't just a book written by fallible men that was for 2,000 years ago and we should ignore it now. And so we have some absolute truths. And I want to start by, by putting up what our church constitution says. The village constitution, this includes several of the absolutes we're going to talk about specifically today. We believe every word of the Bible is inspired by God and is without error in the original text and that it is absolutely trustworthy in all that it teaches. The Bible is the only divinely intended authority for the faith and practice of Christians. Amen? Amen. That's what we believe. So we're going to break that apart. We're going to look at inspiration today. We're going to look at inerrancy. And we're going to look at authority, all of which are, are mentioned there. And and I was looking to to maybe package these a little differently because we talked about these 10 years ago together. And so I was like, well, can I separate those three? I'm like, no, those three go together. And you'll see why as we go through it. They build on each other. And so if you were here 10 years ago, um, our doctrine on the Bible hasn't changed. And so you'll hear some of the same doctrine, and isn't that a good thing? And and so um, we want to explore this. We start with number one, inspiration. The Bible alone is the very words of God. The Bible alone is the very words of God, and we call this inspiration. And I want you to know the terms that we use in theology, so that way you're versed in it, and you can say, yeah, that's what it means when someone says inspiration. And this answers the question, who is the author? Was it a bunch of old dudes or was it God? And and so we'll get into that. And so we would say that no, God himself is the author of the Bible. Every single word was superintended by him. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And this is the key section when we talk about inspiration. And then we'll jump to a lot of other verses this morning. But this is the one that I really want to focus in on, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. And as we study this, we're going to see the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. And so in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, it starts by saying, all Scripture is breathed out by God. 
Some of the translations you have say all Scripture is inspired by God. And that's where we get the word inspiration. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so I want to start by talking about that breathed out word and understanding what inspiration is. I put a definition in your notes. Inspiration is the act of God coming onto a man through the Holy Spirit and breathing the very words of Scripture, thus moving that man to, in his own style, write exactly what God wanted written. There will be a test on that later to see if you can watch the Super Bowl. Sort of how you get in the doors of the park. No, no. There's a, there's a lot of words there, right? Because there's a lot of truth that we want to make sure that we get into this definition. And so what we'll talk through this. Inspiration is an act of God. So it's initiated by God. God himself is the one doing the revealing. Coming onto a man through the Holy Spirit and breathing the very words of Scripture. And so God is coming and working through a man. His Holy Spirit is working through the man and breathing the words of Scripture. The word there, and, and the, the ESV t- says breathed out, and the Greek literally means God breathed. Theos neustos, which means God and then breathed, breathed out. So it's like he's, he's blowing into it, and he's working through the man that, he, that, he's, um, that is writing it. And so he's moving that man to in his own style. So the man still writes with his own vocabulary, his, his own style, his own personality shows up. But God is controlling that and directing that so that he writes exactly what God wants written. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate. I love illustrations. This is one that I love for, for inspiration. Let's say the balloon is the word of God. Okay. So this is going to be the word of God. And, and God's breath is going to write every word of the, the word of God. Think of the straw as the author. The, the man that the Holy Spirit comes on. And so God then, with his breath, writes the word of God. Through the straw. Now, now this, this may seem like a silly illustration, but I love visuals because they help us understand especially difficult concepts. Did the straw write the word of God? Trick question. Sort of, but did the straw decide the words that were going in there? No, no, that's breathed through the, the breath of God. So, so the, the straw represents the author, and he simply is the conduit through which God works. And God comes on him, and the Holy Spirit comes on him, and directs every single word that is written. Now, now sometimes people say, well, that's just dictation. It's like a secretary. And there are points in the Scripture that are like that, where God says, write this. That's when we know that it was direct dictation. But really, we're not talking dictation. We're talking God working through that man, the Holy Spirit working through him, but ensuring that every word is the word of God. It is God-breathed. It, is, it does originate with God, and he superintends every word. Now, the danger with a word like inspiration is we use that differently, right? We can look at um, a, a beautiful sunrise and say we are inspired by that. It just makes us feel so good. 
and just motivates us to have a good day. Now, now if I see the sunrise, that doesn't motivate me to see a good day. <laughs> that motivates me to love naps that day. But, um, <laughs> but we, we see something beautiful and it inspires us to write or to draw or to, to be a better person. That is not what we're talking about. That's how we will use that in English sometimes. But when we are talking inspired, I think it's better to do what the ESV does and say breathed out or God breathed. Because we are saying that God himself orchestrated every word. And that's important to understand because if we just view it as a a, a nice inspired to do something good, now we're saying the man could have written anything he wanted and he just got some of the ideas God wanted in there. And that is not what we believe about Scripture. It is the very words of God. Did you catch the the first word of 2 Timothy 3.16? What's the first word there? All Scripture is breathed out by God. Not just some, but all. Every word, every part, and the whole is breathed out by God. And so these are God's words. They are not man's words. Every word is under His control. In 2 Peter 1, and I'll read this to you. You can turn there if you want. But 2 Peter 1, 16 and 20 to 21, Peter is writing about how Scripture came to be. And he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. These aren't just fairy tales. These aren't just stories we heard. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And then verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And Peter here is dealing with inspiration again, that this is God-breathed. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And that counters this idea that, oh, it was just a bunch of men writing something to create their own system of religion, something to create... A, a system around themselves for power and for their glory. No, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is saying the same thing. They're carried along by the Holy Spirit. They are speaking God's very words. This is not their interpretation. This is not their will. And prophecy in this case, and he uses it in several different ways there, he's dealing with pretty much, he's using that as a term for the whole of the Old Testament at this point. That this was inspired by God, not man. Now to to understand, and back to that word all in 2 Timothy 3.16, we have two different ways that we use the word all, and these are words that that you may not use every day, well one of them, but we use verbal and plenary to understand inspiration. Verbal and plenary. And verbal is the idea that every word is inspired by God. Not just the ideas, but every word, to the thes, to the ofs, to, to everything in there, that God by His Spirit guarantees the reliability and the authenticity of every word. And so we can trust that every word that we read in here is the very word of God. That gives it importance. That gives it significance. Plenary is the idea of full and that all of the words in their entirety are inspired. And and so this gets to that your whole Bible is inspired the way it is, the way we have it, And this is all under God's superintendence. We can't just cut and choose. We can't take white out and get rid of the parts that are a little convicting. 
but the whole of God's word is also inspired. So each word is, and the whole as we have it is. One pastor said this, Barnhouse says, this book does not just contain the word of God, it is the word of God. And that's an important distinction that we need to make with people because many people will say, oh yeah, it probably has the word of God somewhere in there. Probably contains some good things. No, this is the very word of God. Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, if you remember, he's talking to them at one point about um, taking care of their parents and this idea of, of Corbin, where you could take some money away from your parents to be used for God, and, and you didn't have to provide for your parents. And the Pharisees said, oh, all of our money is Corbin. We're going to use it for ourselves and God, and we can just let our parents die. And, and Jesus says, no, that is not what the law says. And he says this, thus making void the word of God. And he's talking about the Old Testament here in the Old Testament law. They were making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And it's an example of Jesus calling the Old Testament the very words of God. This is inspiration. And this is why we, we hold the Bible as a foundational document, as the only foundational document for what we believe. Because the Bible alone is the very words of God. Make sense? These are just some of the biblical reasons why. We'll look at some of the the other evidences in, in weeks to come. So if this is the very word of God, if this is God Almighty saying, I have a message for you, then we should value this. We should look at it. But what is it useful for? And if we jump back to the 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if your finger is still there, that's exactly where Paul goes as he's writing to Timothy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, It's breathed out and is profitable for, and that word profitable sometimes is translated useful. So so why did God do this? What is it useful for? And he gives four things. The first two deal primarily with doctrine. The second two deal primarily with conduct. He says it's profitable for teaching. For teaching the truths about God. For teaching the doctrine about God. That makes sense. If this is God's revelation of what he wants to know about uh, us to know about him, then this is where we have to go to know him. And so teaching to know God. Rebuke when someone has strayed to falsehood, when they, they have abandoned the faith, or, or when they've even left the, the faith. And their conduct has left the faith. Their beliefs have left the faith. The Bible can rebuke and bring them back. Then we get to the two on conduct and correction. Correction is this is the way back. This is how you get back on, on course. You're wrong here. Your lifestyle's wrong here. Let's correct it and get it right. It's like if your car's going off a, a hill and going off the road and maybe you've fallen asleep and you hit those bumpty bumps, which I am so thankful for. I know that's the technical word for them, bumpty bumps. Um, no, I'm sure there's another word. You hit those and what does it do? It wakes you up and you correct your course, Lord willing. And that's what the Bible does. It wakes us up when we're going off track and then says, go this way. Now, now the, the fourth one is, is then the continuation of that instruction in righteousness. This is how you're to walk with God. This is how you're to walk through life. Now, keep in mind, this book is a loving, almighty God revealing himself to us and coming to us because he loves us. And so when he gives us commands of how to live and correction and instruction, these commands are for our good. He, he did this for our good. 
because He loves us. And so don't just blow off the Bible saying, oh, it's just a bunch of rules. God's just an angry God. He just, you know, He's arbitrary. No, everything He's written here, it is written because He loves us and this is for our good and His glory. Everything. And so we're to treasure this. We're to love this. It blows me away. And, and even as I studied this week on a doctrine that I've taught in every Welcome to Village class and that we've taught here before, what still blew me away is that these are the very words of, of God who loves me and who didn't leave me stranded and who didn't leave me in darkness but loved me enough to give me His very words. This is amazing. Treasure this. And so we, 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 start, we start with inspiration because this is the beginning point that God wrote this to us. Do you believe these are the very words of God? I mean, doesn't it make sense that a God who wants a relationship would tell us how? Would reveal His Word, and that's what He's done. And so if these are the very words of God, how do I treat reading my Bible? We talked at the beginning about what if love letters from our spouse came to us. We wouldn't just throw those away. We would cherish them. We would read them. Quite frankly, I care more what, what Susie says to me than any other person on this planet. But this is God's love letter to us. Do we treat it with that kind of love and interest and respect? It's a message from God to us. Don't forget that. It should remind us, the doctrine of inspiration reminds us we can trust our Bible, but it reminds us that God loves us and wants us to cherish His Word. The next absolute truth about God's Word that we want to talk about, and this this comes right out of, of inspiration, is that of inerrancy. The Bible is completely without error. The Bible is completely without error, inerrancy. And so inspiration actually leads us, when we, when we get the foundation that these are the very words of God, it leads us to several other absolutes. Inerrancy is one of them. That this is an authority is one of them. We'll talk about those this morning. Um, when we talk about sufficiency, when we talk about necessity, these are all things that come out of the fact that this is God saying, hey, this is, this is what I want for you. And so what is inerrancy? And, and there's all kinds of debate about this and people trying to back off inerrancy because they don't want to admit truth, as Teresa said. And we don't want to say that the Bible is absolute truth. The dictionary defines inerrant as meaning um, freedom from error or untruths. So it's without error or anything that's untrue. And I think that's a, a good definition. Infallible is a word that we sometimes use, and I'll, I'll explain the difference in a minute here. But infallible, according to the dictionary, means incapable of erring. And, and if that's the definition, then I, I affirm that as well. And so we believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. There is no falsehood in this book whatsoever. Not even one verse is false. But every verse is true. Now, now just a, a simple logical analysis of this. A, God himself is truth, right? God is truth. B, every word is from God. We've proven that in in inspiration. So if God is truth and every word is from God, what can we say about the word? The word is truth. Okay, this is just a a simple three-point logical argument, but this is the foundation. God's word must be truth if it is from him. Because if it isn't truth, if there's, a, if there's error in it, then either God is lying or God isn't a God of truth or He didn't write it. 
And so these doctrines have to go together. So if I had to put a definition of inerrancy, and in fact we did in your notes, the Bible is inerrant in its original authorship in all aspects, including historically, factually, and spiritually, and does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Let me read that again. The Bible is inerrant in its original authorship in all aspects, including historically, factually, and spiritually, and does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Again, amen? The Bible's dependable, if you had to summarize that. It's dependable. It's reliable. It's correct. It's accurate. It's infallible. It's inerrant. Those are all words that we can use to describe this. It is completely truthful in everything it asserts. Now, does it intend to to be a book that includes all science? No. Does it intend to be a book that includes all history? No. But in everything it says about those subjects, it is true. And there is no contradiction between science and the Bible, no matter what people say. And we'll talk about how do we deal with contradictions or how do we deal with apparent contradictions. Because it is reliable and accurate. It's the very words of God. These two go together. So why why is inerrancy important? Why is this a, a vital doctrine to talk about? Because like I said, if the Bible is full of errors, we cannot trust God any longer. We sang about trusting God this morning on purpose. Because we know that this book is true, because we know it's His Word, we can trust Him. God will not lie. He does not lie. Numbers 23, 19, looking at some other passages. God is not a man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? God is absolutely true every minute and every moment. He has always been true. He always will be true. And so we know his words are true. Titus 1-2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. Jesus himself, in, in a prayer to the Father, said this in John seventeen seventeen: Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so when we talk about inerrancy, we know that every word of God's word is true. Now, you might have noticed in that definition and and something that we'll just take a moment on, we say in their original authorship. And our Constitution says the same thing. I get a lot of questions about this. Well, what does that mean? Well, simply it is that we don't have the original texts of the Bible. Now, we have texts of the New Testament that come in the same generation as when they were written, but we don't have the actual scroll that Paul wrote on or that John, John wrote on. But we do have an accurate copy of God's Word. We have texts that are closer to the original than any other historical document in history. We'll look at that in two weeks. And so we can trust that. But but just because we don't have the original, and people will say, well, that, that invalidates the whole thing. That doesn't if you know that you have exact copies. And we can look at how they made copies and know that they, they took great care in, in how they made copies. We can look at the, the variety of copies and that they all compare equally. When you have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that are found that are 1,200 years newer than, than the documents we had and they match word for word, 
That's a testimony to that this is God's very word and he is protecting it. And he is sovereign over this. And, and, and so sometimes, again, take people to real live examples. Today, in the National Bureau of Standards, there is an exact yardstick. Okay, It is the measurement for yardage uh, that every one of our measurements come from. Chances are, though, you have never gone there and measured your material or measured whatever you have to that exact yardstick, right? So see, you're all wrong in your measurements. Why are you not wrong? Because what you have is based on that, right? What you have is an exact duplicate of that length. You know, it's why we can have yardage in football today. Can you put up that, that screen? So, so here's today, picture of it. And, and these are yardage, okay? And it's exact. They did not go to the Bureau of Standards and get the yard out to measure this. They have an exact duplication of it. Now, what if we didn't have that? What if they didn't use an exact duplication of that? What if one of the teams that was going towards the Patriots end zone said, you know what, we'd like to change it for the second half? Then it might look like this. And I don't know if you can tell on the left, but that team has an advantage. Their, their, their end zone is big because their yard is different. That's not going to happen. Maybe if it was up at the Patriots home field, but, um, <laughs> sorry. That was a low blow. Just ignore that one. Um, it's not going to happen because they have a yard and they have measuring tapes that have an accurate yard. Nobody is going to go out on the field today and question whether these are yards. Because we go back to the truth and back to the standard. This is the same thing with God's Word. The original is completely without error, but what we have is an exact duplicate and we have so much proof to show that, that we know we can trust it. And so when someone says, well, you don't have the original documents, you can say, well, actually, we have documents closest to the original of any other historical document. We know that these are an accurate duplication of that. And so we can trust it. We can trust it. Beyond that, theologically, if God is able to create a universe with a word, and if he is able to create you and I in his image and want relationship with us, do you think he can handle keeping his word safe for us? Yeah. Yeah. We can trust this. Now, sometimes infallibility has been used as a synonym to inerrancy, but more and more lately, and this is important to understand, more and more lately we see some theologians using it as something different from inerrancy because they are trying to back off from inerrancy and, and not hold to inerrancy, but not have anyone know. Because that would be just just spiritual suicide in a way. Uh, and, and so they've come up with this word infallibility, and some people will use that to say, well, we're not going to say that every word is accurate, but we're going to say that the ideas are truthful and accurate as they apply to faith and practice. Do you see the slippery slope? Let's just deny parts of it. Let's just get rid of the parts we don't like. Or, or maybe if, it, if we think it disagrees with science, maybe we just get rid of those parts. But this is soft-pedaling inerrancy. This is trying to back away from it. Yes, the Bible is true. 
in matters of faith and practice, but oh, so much more. So much more. So I hold to inerrancy and infallibility. Both are true because God is true. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. What a great verse, right? Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I love that, that the author there puts those two together. Because if, if God's word isn't true, how much of a shield is God to us? If he's lying to us in his revelation to us, really, can we trust him to take care of us in problems? No, the, the fact, doctrine matters, which is why we'll talk about doctrine of village. Doctrine makes a difference. And if we believe that these are the very words of God, and if we believe they are true, then we can trust God and depend on him in every storm and in every trial and every situation. Because he does not fail. He does not back off his word. This is vital to understand. Psalm 18.30, the psalmist also says this. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. And so God will not lie. There are no lies in this book. There are no mistakes in this book. God didn't just forget about something and overlook some fact. He is omniscient. And this book proves it. In fact, to say that there's error is to question God's character. Is God ever an error? Is He not strong enough, like I said, to not allow errors in? Does He not know everything, so He blows it in what He writes? Is He not truth? We hold to inspiration and inerrancy. A couple of quick things. Just, just how do we work some of the inerrancy out? The Bible can be an errant and. I have that section in your notes. Um, there's all kinds of things people will use to object to inerrancy and say, well, you know, that number is different from this number. You know, 799 is different from 800. And we have to start understanding some of the reasons for some of these things. The Bible can be an errant and use ordinary language or figures of speech. It can be inerrant and use ordinary language or figures of speech. Remember, God is, is blowing through a straw, so to speak. He is working through a conduit, and that conduit's um, personality and their style come out. They also are writing with figures of speech of the day. And, and so things like, they'll say the sun is rising. And some of my science friends will say, see, the Bible's wrong. The sun doesn't actually rise. We spin around the sun. Well, okay, who, who of us don't say the sun is rising, right? Because that, to our experience, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Now, yes, that's because the earth is spinning and we're revolving around the sun, but that figure of speech doesn't decry or doesn't say that the Bible has error in it. It's how we talk and we understand what that means. If I was to tell you I live three miles away from village, am I right? Some of you are like, I don't know where you live. (laughs) I live three miles away from village. That is an accurate statement. Sort of. See, I I actually live 3.2 miles away from village. But none of us talk like that, right? We say we round, and and that's just normal ways we talk. And actually, 3.2 is only if you take West Street. Because if you take 9th Street, it's 3.3. So I'm just a liar all over the place. I don't even know what it is as the crow flies. 
But we use normal language. The Bible uses normal language. And quite frankly, that answers almost all of the objections for the, for the problems in the Bible. Because we have to understand it's using normal language. The Bible can be inerrant and use loose quotes or use free-form quotes. We do this again. We say, well, you know, I was talking with so-and-so, and they said something like, or, or and they said, and we know that this isn't an exact quote, but we're getting the idea of what they said. And that happens all over in the Bible, especially in Greek in a language that had no such concept as direct quotes. And so that does not call into question the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible can also be inerrant and write in symbolic poetry or use other metaphors. That is, in poetry, you're going to get all kinds of symbols. You know, my wife's neck is like a tower. You know, we, we see that in the song. So don't say that to your wife, by the way. <laughs> but apparently it was beautiful back then. That doesn't mean the Bible's an error because my wife's neck isn't a tower. Right? These are silly objections. But we have to understand that the Bible is written through men, but it's God-breathed. And these things are are normal and natural. It's how we communicate. Just a, a couple of other quick things. What if we allow error? You might say, well, you know, what's the problem with just a couple errors in God's word? The Jesus seminar has spent all kinds of time to find the real Jesus. And they have red letters for the words Jesus actually spoke and pink letters for the words he might have spoke. And then they they say there's other words that he definitely didn't speak. I, I have no idea how they actually came up with some of those. But if the Bible isn't true, what does that say? We've already said, asked, what does it say about the character of God? But if only a part is true, who gets to decide the parts? God wouldn't do that to us. You know, as an elder board, we're going to get through together and decide which parts are true so we can tell you what to do. No! Because that puts the authority in our hands, not in God's hand. The Bible is absolutely trustworthy, and it's beautiful that way. Because God is trustworthy. And if I can't believe one thing the Bible says, I can't trust anything it says. Because how do I know that's not right? If God proves to be a liar, how can I take him at his word for anything? Including that Jesus Christ came. Including that I can be saved from my sins. Including that he rose from the dead on the third day. Including that he's coming back to take me to heaven with him. Including for God so loved the world. Do you see why we can't even go down that path? Because then we have to write off the whole. We cannot allow even an iota of error. Another point that, that an author made that I really it made a lot of sense. If we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds higher than God's. We are now a higher standard of truth than God's words itself. Because now I, as a finite, fallible human, I am thinking God made a mistake and I know it. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes more sense? You didn't create the world, by the way. I'm going to trust God. If we deny inerrancy, we start in a, a descent into abandoning some other key doctrines. Um, I don't have time to read a quote I have on that, but that is what's happening. And, and, and history has shown over and over that abandoning inerrancy is the first step to abandon it, abandoning the, the essentials of the faith and of truth. 
Guys, all of these differences people will say are errors, they're all resolvable. They're all resolvable. We'll, we'll, we'll talk through some of those. I, I have some points of that that we're not going to get into today. We'll get into that in week seven. Um, but after hundreds of years of facing the heaviest arguments, the heaviest guns skeptics could throw at it, the Bible still stands. The Bible has survived. None of the arguments about its, its errors have. The Bible, these two arguments, the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture, convince us the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. And point number three there, a, a point that's a logical conclusion of the other two, so we'll just do it quickly. The Bible alone is our ultimate authority. The Bible alone is our ultimate authority. So the word there is authority. I know I use the same word twice. Our authority, our ultimate authority isn't a church leader. It isn't your pastor. It's not tradition. It's not feelings. It's not a a great book we read by some other author. The ultimate authority is always God's Word. The Bible alone has the right to define what we should believe and how we should act. Now that's hard. Hard to say we have an ultimate authority. Because we're just like the five-year-old that says, you're not the boss of me to everyone. The God who created you is. And His Word is true. And it is the authority in our life. The two points there, the bullet points, the Bible is God's direct authority in our lives because it's His direct words. Since it's the very words of God, if I don't follow it, I'm questioning whether God has authority, not whether, whether He wrote the Bible. As the Bible is infallible, inerrant, and absolutely trustworthy in all it teaches, it is the final authority and only divinely intended authority for faith and life. That again is a, is a doctrinal statement, but it's a key statement for us. As the Bible is infallible, inerrant, and absolutely trustworthy in all it teaches, it is the final authority and only divinely intended authority for faith and life. I mean, you remember Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, what we started out. He says it's inspired, and so it's useful to tell us how to live. And in fact, the, the verse 17 goes on to say that it helps us be complete. It helps us be mature, lacking in nothing, because it's the authority in our lives. Jesus uses it as an authority with Satan. Remember as we went through the temptations of Christ in Luke? How did Christ answer? He quoted Scripture. Because it is the authority of life. And he was coming under that authority, giving us that example. And then letter B, all other authorities fall under the authority of the Word of God. All other authorities fall under the authority of the Word of God. They're derived authorities. And so if any other authority, including anything said from this pulpit, disagrees with God's Word, God's Word wins. God's Word wins. In Acts 17.11, Paul is talking to the Bereans. He had just been in Thessalonica and they struggled to accept what he had said. Some did, some didn't. But then he went to Berea and he writes this. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What an example we have of understanding the authority of scripture. They examined the scriptures daily to see if Paul was telling them the truth. I challenge you, examine every week God's word and make sure what we say from this pulpit is true. 
whether it's me or Pastor Andrew or Pastor AJ or one of the elders, make sure what we say is true and call us on it if it isn't. Because we are not your final authority. God's Word is. My prayer is we're doing the best we can to faithfully teach God's Word as it is written. But call us if we don't. We need to wrap up. I want to end with a quote that I, that I have a slide for. A quote by Jackie Perry, an author, um, a popular author today. But she's talking about following God's Word, even if we don't understand it, or even if we, we think it's, it's not right for us. She says, Since God is holy and utterly good by nature, even His harshest commands are worth your obedience. Or to say it another way, if God is as good as He says He is, then every single command is good for you, even if it doesn't feel good to you. There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. God is good, and every command is from Him. This is His Word, and it's for our good and His glory. Love God's Word. Follow it. You know, a bumper sticker I'd love to see. I've mentioned this before. God said it. That settles it. And so I believe it. God said it. That settles it. And I believe it. We're going to move to a time of communion and end our service with communion. And and as we think about communion, I'd like to, to draw our thoughts back to John chapter 1 today. A little bit different place to start with communion. But when we're talking about the Word of God and God's revelation to us, His ultimate revelation was, was Jesus Christ. That's who shows us the Father. And the Bible then tells us about that. But in John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And we jump ahead to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John goes on to talk about His grace and that by coming to Him we can be accepted. We can be saved. That is God's revelation to us. We celebrate that with communion. With the bread, it celebrates God's body. Jesus' body, rather, that was given for us on the cross. That He willingly gave to pay for our sins. The juice represents His blood that was spilled to obtain forgiveness for sins that was spilled in our place to take the consequence for that sin. So if we believe in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can, we can take His righteousness on ourselves. We don't want to forget that. So today as we talk about God's Word, we talk about God's Word, Jesus Christ. We, we celebrate that. We remember that. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the revelation of Your Word that You loved us enough to tell us who you are, to give us a way to yourself, to bring your son to save us. That Jesus came and lived a perfect life and then died for sins he didn't commit, but we did in our place, but then rose again on the third day, signifying complete victory over sin that every one of our sins is paid for. Lord, thank you for your word and the testimony in in it and that we can trust you in all things. We love you and we love your word. In your name, amen.